2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to uh, pick up reading in, in verse, uh, in, in verse 7 is where I want to start reading. In verses 1 through 6, he had told a, a, a testimony of a vision of heaven that God had given him. And in verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it might leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfect, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong you are likely familiar with this passage it is a passage that speaks to one of the most intimate realities of being a disciple of Christ the most natural of man's desire is to be strong and independent and the most dreaded situation is to be weak and dependent. And yet, in the affairs of the world, the inclination to be self-sufficient may serve you well, but not before God. You may, for a while, be able to maintain the illusion, the, the, the false facade of independence from the sovereignty and power of God. However, at some point, whether from physical fragility or, at, or, or calamity outside of your control, you will be confronted with the, uh, your utter dependence upon the Lord. Now, I want to make the case today that when you get to that point, it's a good place to be. But it tends to be what we avoid and desperately try to work against with everything that we have. The secular person shakes their fists towards heaven, screaming in defiance and desperately trying to ignore their need for God. The Christian may weep for a moment for themselves, but soon their tears are turned to joy when in weakness they come to know the power of God. If you keep track of these sort of things, I preached this passage before. The last time I preached this passage was on January the 10th, 2021. It was the first sermon I preached in that year. So it was, for me, it was the New Year's sermon. And at the time, we were only about 60 days from the last time that we had had to cancel services because of COVID. That time because... I myself was in the hospital. So 60 days past canceling service, 60 days after recovering for me from COVID. And at the time, we were, as a church, and, and certainly me as, 
pastoral leadership just beginning to come to grips with how the world had changed, was being changed, and how some of our hopes for returning to what had been prior to COVID were, were, were not going to be. In my conclusion of that sermon on that Sunday, I, I said these words. I just want to read them to you. I, as I was re returning to them this week, as I was preparing this morning, uh, they struck me. Here's what I said. I said, I've come to believe that the consequences of the pandemic on the church are likely to be severe and long-lasting. I also believe it will be some time before the true extent of these consequences will be known. In March of last year, so that would have been March of 2020, when we thought that the shutdowns and social distancing efforts would be temporary, it was easy to believe that when it was all over, we would return unchanged. But now, 11 months in and likely many more months remaining, I no longer think we will return to what we were before the pandemic. That proved to be very true. I fear that many will become accustomed to not attending church. I fear that some of our senior adults will never return. I fear that those who were only nominally connected to the church will be lost to the world. I could not know then all the ways that the world and the, 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 that the world and the ministry of the church within the world would be changed because of the consequences of COVID. But I was fearful then that they would be significant and devastating. They were indeed. They are indeed. Just looking out over you right now, there are some folks who were a part of us before COVID that are sitting at their home right now. Not because they're sick, not because they're infirmed, but because they were, they were nominally connected 2020, and after they had been gone for a year, they never came back. Some of you have gone to them and pleaded with them. But their, their, their heart, their attention has been moved to other things now. And they're essentially lost to the church, lost to the world, until the Lord does a work in their life. We continue to witness, even as a, in a post-pandemic world, we continue to witness that what sustains the church and the believers in a broken world is not our physical strength. Let me be honest. The pandemics and the shutdowns should have destroyed the church. There were places, and even in our own local community, some actions from legal and governmental things that I think were designed specifically to harm church the, the church should have been devastated by covid and yet what we learned is what this passage declares is what sustains us then and now is not our physical strength it's not our ability it's not our ingenuity it's not our intellect what sustains us is the power of god when this passage is preached most often we begin in verse 7. However, to adequately understand the passage, you must read it in context. That's why 
preaching through a book can be such a blessing to the church. Because if you've been with me these last many Sundays, you know when he says in chapter 7, verse 7, that, he, that to keep him from being conceited, you know what he's talking about. Beginning in chapter 10 through 11 and into chapter 12, Paul's been defending his ministry from the accusations of false teachers and calling out their preaching as false. In chapter 11, Paul can, can, can uh, counters their foolish boasting with boasting of their own and of his own. And in the first six chapter verses of chapter 12, he takes that boasting to a level that most of us cannot compete with. So in chapter uh, 11, he boasted about his own struggles, his own persecutions, and all of those things. And he basically said in chapter 11, I've done more for the kingdom than the false teachers have. And, but he said, that's worthless boasting. That really doesn't have any bearing at all. But then in, verse, in chapter 12, he says, but let me tell you about an experience I had 14 years prior. God took me and gave me a glimpse of heaven, and what I heard and saw in the glory of heaven was so amazing that I cannot utter words to even describe to you what I saw. Now, anybody in here have a, a, equal testimony? Me neither. And my, my guess is that when Paul gave, wrote those words to the Corinthians that the false teachers and nobody in the church had a, had a testimony that could equal that either. Which, if you're thinking about boasting, that's pretty impressive. But then he says, but to keep me from being conceited. So what we're reading today, what I'm preaching today, is connected to the vision that he talks about in the first six verses. You see, our sinful nature is quick to take the glory from the blessings and the gifts of God for ourselves. We often even claim that they came from us rather than from God. Yet when confronted with our true weakness, we come to know through experience the sufficiency of God's grace that his grace is enough for us. So this morning, I want to give you these two truths from this passage. Number one. That when God reveals to us our weakness, there's purpose behind that. God purposely confronts us with our weakness that we might know his grace. And then secondly, that revealing weakness, that when we come to understand our weakness, we see things we cannot see when we think we're strong, like the majesty and the power and the glory of God. Let's begin with purposeful weakness. In verse 7, Paul just got out of his mouth the, the vision that he had seen, that God had given him 14 years later. And then he says in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I, I prayed three times for it to go away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. I think in, in, this, in this weakness that God gave Paul, one of the purposes of that was God was protecting Paul. That God's protection is given to us when we are aware of our weakness. 
So verse 7 references the great revelation that Paul had received 14 years later. And, and Paul d- d- did not speak much about this revelation other than to say the vision, uh, that what he saw in, of heaven, what he heard in heaven was inexpressible, could not be uttered. But let's just, let's be honest with one another. That must have been, has to have been, an amazing experience. And like in our day, in Paul's day, religious charlatans often claim to have visions from God and visions from heaven. In, in our day, there are some who claim to have visions from God to give them, uh, what, to give them what, they, give what they say to have authority. Be very, very, very careful. Listen to me. Be very careful when somebody says to you, God told me to tell you this. What they ought to be saying is, here's what the Word of God says to us. The authority that a preacher has when he preaches is the Word of God. Be very careful when, God, when somebody says, God told me this, because what they're attempting to do is give a authority to their personal words that may or may not be from the Word of God. Let the authority, let the, let the, the power of what is preached be from the Word of God, not a claim that God gave them. Like in our day and in Paul's day, often people claim to have revelations and a spiritual experience so that they might have some special authority to what they said. Maybe some even claim to have gone to heaven and come back. I, I, I spoke to you last Sunday of those who write books and make money off that claim. The Corinthians placed a high value on, on visions, and though Paul had kept this secret for 14 years, he may have chosen this moment to reveal what he had experienced in order to, to, to demonstrate to the Corinthians uh, uh, his relationship with the Lord and to allow him to speak to them because he understood they would hear him because of this claim. But before he even allowed a millisecond for anyone in the church to think that this vision should make you think more of him or be impressed of him, he points to a danger within his own heart. He tells his testimony of visions of heaven. And then almost in the same breath, but to keep me from being conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. That is... The danger that God recognized that would flow from these visions is that it could cause Paul to exalt himself over the righteousness of the Lord, over the word of God. Verse 7 indicates that becoming conceited, listen to me carefully, was not only a possibility, it was an inevitability. Paul doesn't doesn't say, God didn't give Paul the thorn in the flesh because he became conceited. No, God gave Paul the thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. In other words, God wasn't reacting to Paul's sin. He wasn't, Paul didn't see the vision, then get conceited, then get the thorn in the flesh. No, Paul saw the vision, God gave him the thorn to keep him from being conceited. This tendency in us does not require a vision from heaven. Listen to me carefully. We can allow the smallest of things to become opportunities to exalt ourselves. God in his grace, in his protective grace, gave Paul this weakness to keep him from the sin of thinking of himself more than he should. We do this all the time. We can allow the smallest of things to make us think better of ourselves. Are you a healthy person? Praise God for that. But in your health and 
physical well-being. You can walk by somebody who's struggling physically and get conceited. Well, I'm better than they are, and yet you had nothing to do with how healthy you are. Wealth. Has God blessed you with, with wealth? Give God thanks for that. But that wealth can allow you to become conceited, thinking that somehow because your bank account is greater than another, that you're better than, greater than, or God's blessed you more than. Success in your education, in your career, and, uh, and those sort of things, you can, you can come to believe that because you've attained some level of success, however you define that, somehow that makes you better, grander, conceited. Your family's doing well. Our church is growing. Your talents, speaking and, and, and singing or something that God's giving you, any gift of God that he's given you can become an opportunity for you not to give glory to God, but for you to become conceited and think more of yourself than you should. This thorn that God gives to Paul is not because God is petulant. God is protecting Paul from the serious sin of exalting himself over the Lord. Now, let's be, be very clear here. The thorn in Paul's flesh did not make him weak. The thorn in his flesh revealed the truth of his weakness. And in recognizing his weakness, Paul was kept and protected from disastrous and destructive sin. God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh to expose his weakness and to protect him from sin. Do you see how that is an act of grace? You, we would generally think that the that the vision would be something good that God gave, and it certainly was. But with the vision came the thorn. Because God knew of Paul's heart that he was prone to, to conceit, to, to thinking of himself more than he should have. And that vision would have lit that fire under that propensity towards sin. So with the vision comes the thorn, because weakness in part is the way God protects us from our propensity towards sin. Useful weakness in that God is protecting us. Useful weakness in God's grace. In verse 8, in the first part of verse 9, Paul prays repeatedly. And I, I would add to this, and this is just my assumption here, passionately for his troubles to be removed from him. Now, I don't need to see a show of hands because I know it's, it's most likely universally 100% in this room. But probably if we were to go row by row, pew by pew this morning, and, and you felt free to do this, all of us in this room have prayed passionately for something. M maybe, maybe there's something physically wrong with you. And it's been a vexation for you for a long time, and you have made it a matter of intense prayer. God, deliver me from this. Heal me from this. Maybe there's something amiss in your life. Maybe there's a great need in your life. And whatever it is, you, that's just been, when, when you think about the way you pray and what you pray for, when you think about your personal, private, secret prayer, closet prayer request, that's usually at the top. Oh, God, deliver me from this. I think that's what this kind of prayer was. Paul says three times, maybe it was just three, but I think using three there in the sense of just complete, but total, but Paul had given this a matter of prayer and intensity. God, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. 
And in his prayer request, I'm convinced that he think, or at least he thought, past tense, the blessing of God would be to remove what is troubling him. Friends, we tend to pray for things that we think are good for us. And so if you've passionately prayed for God to give you something or take away something from you, you think that giving or removing from your life would be the best thing for you. But in verse 9, Jesus answers his request with the answer that we do not like. God, Jesus says to, to Paul, no. You do understand that God answers our prayer, but sometimes we only count answers when there are answers in the affirmative. But God is not dependent on what you demand. God is sovereign according to his own will. Which means, often when we pray, God says no. And when God says no, that no is as sweet and as good and blessed as, as when God says yes. And I want you to see how that happens in this passage. So God says, Jesus says, no, I will not remove the thorn from your flesh. And then Jesus gives an explanation. He says, my grace is enough for you. My power is more beautifully known in your weakness. My, you, staying with the thorn in your flesh is a better, more perfect, more blessed way to demonstrate and know the grace and the sufficiency of my grace than if I were to remove it from you. The Bible tells us in the book of James that every good gift of God, every gift of God is good. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, listen, when God says yes, when God says no, whatever God gives is good. It's a blessing. Through the testimony of Job, the Bible teaches us to recognize the sovereignty of God in every situation, good and bad when in Job chapter 1 it says, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus declared to Paul that his weakness was not a punishment. Listen to me carefully. Jesus declared to Paul that his weakness was not a punishment, but a blessing of grace. When Jesus says yes, we usually say thank you. When Jesus says no, we usually say, why me, Lord? But I want you to hear carefully. When Jesus says no here, this is not a punishment. This is not being harsh on Paul. This is a testimony of God's grace being poured out on Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. God could allow you to never know any suffering. He could allow you to never have any physical ailments, never get a bad diagnosis, never have any pains or hurts. God could allow you never to have any mental difficulty. Some of you are struggling with depression and, and those sort of things right now. God could allow you to every day be sunny and happy. God could allow you to emotionally be st stable all the time and always happy and, all, and going well. God could allow you never to know any disappointments or, disappointments or, or hardships. God could allow you never to have any sufferings or, or difficulties in your life. But 
if you never knew such things, you would also never appreciate your true weakness. And if you never appreciate your true weakness, you cannot know the grace of God or the power of God. So that Paul might know greater things, Jesus says no, that he might receive the grace of knowing that his grace indeed is sufficient for Paul. Those who think themselves sufficiently powerful will never call upon the Lord. And those who do not call on the Lord will never know the glorious and mighty things that God can do. The gifts of God's grace are not always positive responses to our prayer requests. Often the most gracious and good gifts that God gives are those things that draw you to him and keep you away and keep you aware of your need and dependence upon him. Whatever it is that you're praying desperately for right now, it may be that God's saying no. And it might be that rather than continuing to pray, oh God, change your mind, it might be wise and good for you to say thank you God for your grace that I might know my weakness and know your strength. There's purpose when God makes us aware of our weakness. Secondly, our weakness reveals truth. So in the second half of verse 9, after Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, uh, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. This is the final great boasting of Paul. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Weakness reveals the power of Christ. Paul boasts in his weakness not because he enjoys being weak, but because he understands that Jesus is strong enough. Now, I want to be very careful and clear here. I'm not saying that you need to be happy about your weakness. And I'm not saying you need to enjoy it. I don't think for a moment Paul enjoyed the thorn in this flesh, and I'm pretty confident that when Jesus called him home unto glory, Paul was glad to be shut of it. So those things in your life that have revealed unto you your weakness, I'm not saying you have to stand up today and say, oh, I'm so thankful I got a terrible diagnosis last week. Oh, I'm so thankful that I'm disabled for the rest of my life. Oh, I'm so thankful that I, I struggle with overwhelming depression. I'm not saying you have to be happy in the sense of glad that you received those things. But I am calling you to recognize their goodness. Paul boasts in his weakness not because he enjoys being weak, but because he understands that in that weakness, in his dealing with that thorn in his flesh, whatever it is, that it's in that weakness that he both gets to witness and demonstrate and experience the power of Christ. Friends, the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is strong enough and able 
to provide for you, to protect you, to make a way for you, to heal you, to give you wisdom, to restore you, to redeem you, to rescue you. And it's only in your weakness will you come to see and experience that truth. In your weakness, you are only aware of what you can do and what you can accomplish. But when you behold the sufficiency of his grace, his strength overwhelms your weakness. The second part of verse 9 is the final boast of Paul. And I think, if you really want to put it in the context, the only boast that matters. So you may remember in all the previous boasting that he has done, he usually says about them, this is foolishness or it doesn't really matter. But this one he doesn't say that about (laughs) because this boasting is for real. In fact, he had demonstrated that the foolishness of the boasting in, in previous chapters where he had boasted in his achievement and his ability and his service and suffering and his identity and even in the first part of this chapter in his spiritual experiences. And in all those things, he goes, those really don't amount to much. But in the second part of verse 9, Paul boasts in the only thing worthy of boasting in. He says, therefore, I boast all the more gladly. In other words, this is a thing to be proud about. This is the thing to celebrate. I boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. All the boasts in the flesh eventually are proven worthless and false. But all, but, the, but, but, but all that, that boast in the power of Christ will be, true, be proven not to be enough boasting to begin with. There will never be enough boast in the power of Christ to truly articulate how great it is. Weakness reveals the power of Christ and it reveals the sustaining grace of Christ. So I want to draw your attention to verse 10. Remembering that Paul has been defending himself against the false teachers and their abuses and their lies about his ministry, this is a concluding word unto all of that. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. And then he gives some details of what he means by that. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. That kind of covers the whole gamut, doesn't it? So false things that people have said about him, difficulties that he's experienced because of preaching the gospel, active uh, persecution from those who hate the gospel and hate uh, his preaching, and calamities, just shipwrecks and storms and difficulties that come his way. And he says, for, so this is because, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness reveals the sustaining grace of Christ. For followers of Christ who are being attacked, Jesus is your champion. Rest in your weakness. Know his strength. For followers of Christ who are being taken advantage of, Jesus is your defender. Rest in your weakness. Rejoice in his strength. For followers of Christ who are being mistreated, Jesus is your deliverer. Rest in your weakness. Rejoice in his strength. 
Today, we, we live among the oppressed. Satan, the deceiver, has made great advances among our culture, in our families, even in our churches. And evil seems to be running, uh, running unchecked in the world. Even in our local community, it seems that those who are haters of God have more influence and, 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 and sort of cultural momentum than those who love the Lord. Because of this, because the world is corrupted by sin, those who live obedient to the commands of Christ, of Christ will, by definition, know oppression and suffering and difficulty. That is the future of as long as we live this side of heaven. To these concerns and many more, the Bible calls you to be content in your weakness, whether that come from persecution or physical illness or even calamity. The Bible calls you to be content in weakness because God's grace is sufficient no matter the circumstances you find yourself in. Everyone in this room, in some form or fashion, is suffering the effects of a fallen world. Some of you will know suffering more painfully. Those who are grieving the loss of a loved one today. Those who are dealing with the news of a terminal disease. Those who are hurting from a broken relationship. You may be suffering more than the neighbor on your pew today. But in all your suffering, whether it be great or small, hear the word of God today. Hear me. His grace is sufficient for you. Some of you are right there going, yeah, 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 but you don't know my story. Yes, I don't know your story, but I'm telling you, his grace is sufficient for you. You're thinking, you don't know how hard I'm hurting or how great my pain is. His grace is sufficient for you, dear friend. Sufficient to meet the need. Sufficient to satisfy all oh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ when you are most weak then and only then are you most strong in the Lord. Have any of you ever heard the story of David Brainerd? I want to tell you the story. It's a little long, so don't pack up. Stay with me now. David Brainerd was born in 1718. He died some 276, year, 276 years ago on October the 9th, 1747. From a secular perspective, his life should have been forgettable, if not regrettable. It's a sad story to tell you. He was born on April the 20th, 1718 in Connecticut. He became a Christian at age 21. From the moment of his salvation, he was passionate about giving his life totally, completely to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. He desired to enter the ministry, and so he went and attended Yale. At that time, uh, Yale was, was a... A, a, a school dedicated to the training and educating of clergy and a respected seminary for that. He goes to Yale. However, during his time at Yale, during his third year, someone overheard a comment that he made about one of the faculty. 
That was the season when the Great Awakening was spreading across our nation. And there was some conflict between the new lights, those who were being awakened, generally the students, and those who were resisting the awakening, often called the old lights, generally the faculty. The faculty had passed, a, or the trustees had passed a, a resolution that if any unkind thing was said about uh, any of the, uh, uh, the professors or faculty, that that could, could result in expulsion for a student. And Brainerd made an offhand comment about one of the instructors that there was no more grace, that he had no more grace than a chair. And because of that loose word, he was, even though he was at the top of his class, a gifted academic, he was expelled from Yale. In that day, being excluded from Yale or Harvard also meant that you were also excluded from the ministry because you could not pastor a church unless you were a trained clergy. Realizing that the opportunity to be a pastor was gone, he turned his attention brokenheartedly to missionary endeavors, and particularly being a missionary among the Native Americans. At the time, hostilities between Native Americans and the colonials were very intense. Geopolitical issues were at stake. England was fighting France, and because those two countries also had inroads amongst Native Americans, if you lived on the frontier, which Brainerd did, they were often being attacked by Native Americans, and it was a, a hostile, very dangerous time to live. And yet he gave his life to going out into the, into the woods, to the villages, to share the gospel with Native Americans. But this wouldn't be a very long work, because only six years later, at the age of 29, he died. That's sad enough. But it gets worse. The tragedy of, of his life is more than just dying young. When you read the account of his life, he was sick almost the entirety of his life. Even during his college days, he had to drop out a few times because he was so sick that he could not get out of bed. And I'll spare you the details, but it wasn't fake sick. It was awful, awful sick. And added to a broken body... He, was also, he also struggled with debilitating depression. And oftentimes, um, what he called a kind of death when he spoke about his depression, oftentimes when he was physically most sick, he was also most emotionally sick. And oftentimes that even happened when he was in the most deplorable of situations, out in the thick of the woods with no comforts of the world around him. Being physically sick, depressed, having a derailed career and living a short life does not generally amount to a life that has a, any significant impact in, in contemporary day or certainly in years to come. And so why some 300, almost 300 years later are we still talking about David Brainerd? After spending the last 19 weeks of his life in the home of Jonathan Edwards, being nursed by Edwards' family, Edwards was so moved by Brainerd's devotion to the Lord that he took his diaries that he had left and he 
edited them and published them in a book called The Life of David Brainerd. John Wesley would say of this book, let every preacher read carefully over the life of David Brainerd. William Carey, a missionary to to Burma, would regard the books as precious and holy. Countless more missionaries and pastors throughout throughout the following centuries would be inspired and encouraged uh, by the the testimony uh, uh, given through the life of David Brainerd in really only six years of ministry. Of all the books that Jonathan Edwards would write, and he wrote a lot, his most reprinted and most well-read is his edited version of The Life of David Brainerd. The impact of Brainerd's life could not have been imagined as he was lying in his sickbed at the Edwards home. When he was sick and miserable and unable to sleep in the deplorable conditions of his hut in the English villages, in in the Indian villages, he could have not imagined that anybody would have ever cared about his life story or even been aware of his labor for the ministry. In May of 1747, knowing that he was not well, going to the home of the Edwards to try to recuperate, recuperate, when he received the news that he had what they called consumption, tuberculosis, and it was, was fatal and would not recover, he must have thought that his service to the Lord would not amount to much. Five months later, in October, when Brainerd breathed his last, few would have thought that his 29 years would be remembered by anybody at all. Watch this. God had demonstrated his power and continues to demonstrate his power through the weak life of Brainerd. First, God brought salvation, the saving knowledge of the grace of Jesus to Native Americans that still has eternal impact today. Sick, depressed, weak in body, dying in the Edwards home, pouring out his heart in his journals. Some of them are so wretchedly hard to read. It's, it's, It's hard to imagine how anybody can continue on their life. And yet his devotion to the Lord in those dying weeks of his life so impacted Edwards that for for the rest of his life, he was encouraged by the life of David Brainerd. That's why he devoted his, his work to editing his diaries. And that's why those diaries continue to bless generation after generation after generation after generation today. And the point I want you to hear is that what you might be thinking right now is, it's great for God's power to be demonstrated in Paul, but that doesn't apply to me. And then you add all the reasons. I'm sick. I'm depressed. I'm old. I'm young. Nobody's going to know I lived or breathed or did anything for the Lord. And I'm telling you, dear friends, listen to me. The power of God is not demonstrated in your strength. The power of God is demonstrated in your And the weaker you may be, the more glorious his power is demonstrated. For Paul, for David Brainerd, for me, and for you. Brothers and sisters, boast not in worldly things. Boast in your weakness. Because only in your weakness are you made strong in the Lord. 
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.